Welcome to this episode of Studying Abroad in the Global South. Today, I'm having a very candid conversation with my colleague, Zerlina Bartholomew, about her experiences as a black person of color studying abroad in Morocco. We hope that this is a useful resource for other students of color who are considering studying abroad and for their advisors who have the incredible responsibility of doing everything they can to prepare them to do so. Hi, welcome to our first super real episode of this podcast, and I mean real, real. As you know, this is an endeavor to try to talk about study abroad in uh, non-normative terms. In the first place, our context is the global south, so that sets us up for all sorts of deep stuff. And secondly, this is not the place that we're going to be talking about getting your passport and stuff mm -hmm. to feel good about. This is a place where we're going to talk about some tough stuff. So we're going to talk about traveling. And within that context of talking about traveling, particularly in the global south, we're going to be talking a lot about identity. You know, in terms of identity, we're going to be talking about color. We're going to be talking about gender identity, gender fluidity. We're going to talk about socioeconomics. And we're going to be talking about identity in terms of both the visible and the less visible. So today, to get us started with our first, as I said, super real episode mm -hmm. of this podcast, we're going to have a general discussion about identity and how it crashes quite literally into this experience in both good ways and bad ways, but certainly in life-altering ways and certainly in ways that generally most of the resources that you're drawing on to prepare for your study abroad experience will not prepare you for. Mm -hmm. So with me today is my good friend and colleague, Zerlina Bartholomew, and I will let her introduce herself and tell you a little bit about what she does and what is her experience. Thank you so much, Elena. Again, my name's Zerlina. Uh, a little bit about myself. Most of my travel has been academic-related, studying abroad twice in undergrad, and then I was a Fulbright research grantee to Morocco in 2015. So my specialty area is the Middle East and North Africa, although I have had extensive time in Europe. I'm really excited, first and foremost, to talk to you, you all, talk with Elena, about the complexities, the challenges, and the rewards in studying abroad and being in different countries. To give you all a little bit about my background, uh, I identify as a black woman. And so those two parts of my identity, of course, again, I will detail more in this discussion, some other aspects that contributed to my experiences. But I, I highlight these two because one, in the study abroad programs that I participated in, as well as other opportunities, representation and visibility of people of color, Black people of color and women was lacking, and so my experiences and the challenges that I faced were not necessarily answered when I was seeking advice. And so I'm here today to kind of give whoever is interested some insight into how to cope with that first. And then secondly, I think it's important that studying abroad in the U.S. context to the Global South to gear it towards this discussion in this podcast, I think it's important that, you know, a lot of these institutions, a lot of these programs, one of the buzzwords that they say is, you know, representing the U.S. However, at least in my experiences and when I speak to my colleagues, representing the U.S. is ultimately those who have the resources. And what does that look like? Let's be quite frank. 
you know, recent statistics say that, you know, 70% or around 70% are still white or white passing people coming from middle to upper class, meaning that they can pay for it, more likely than not. And then how then does that image of the U.S., air quotes, then affect not only the American students' experience, but how the host countries experience American students and how they perceive the U.S.? Let me ask you a question along those lines. So in my career in uh, as an education abroad professional, which has, has some years on it now, <laughs> but it's been a theme and desire throughout, I you know, sort of watched this trajectory now over mm-hmm. many years. People know this. People know that young people of color and marginalized groups of people, people with disabilities, the mm-hmm. LGBTQIA plus community, mm-hmm. that these are underrepresented groups in study abroad. Yes. And I think, I mean, there's one problem and that study abroad is so white, right? As you said, <laughs> that's for one sure. issue. Okay. But issue number two is for all of the recognition that this is an issue mm-hmm. and for all of the efforts. And I think those efforts have been really sincere, sure, right? To get at that and to make resources available and to make study abroad more accessible, we're still failing. Like we're clearly mm-hmm. failing and like failing many years on from when a lot of these initiatives began. I have my own suspicions, but what do you think might be the reason for that failure? And then how does that failure reflect for people of color, LGBTQIA plus students, disabled students in that study abroad environment Mm -hmm. vis-a-vis that representation issue that you discussed? Sure. I think obviously these are all really timely questions and important questions. And so kind of just to break it down, because I have a a lot of ideas and thoughts in my head, r- running in my head right now. We have a I billion think- episodes we can do. <laughs> so, and you're going to come back for all of them. Oh, so thank there you. you thank okay. you. So I think primarily in terms of the efforts that are in place and what can be done in the future, as well as the targeted audiences, first and foremost, outreach is really important. Speaking on the side of what can institutions and programs do. Visiting campuses, yes, it's good to maintain contact with schools that you know will can tribute students, will encourage students to participate in these programs. But reaching out to lesser known schools or regions in the U.S. where maybe there's not a lot of contact, that's going to take more effort, admittedly. I'm not going to say it's easy, but it's establishing that initial contact. Maybe they won't get back to you in that academic year, but somewhere along the way, some student's going to ask the international office, hey, I'm interested in studying abroad in this region? Do you have any information? And they're going to go into their archives. Now, to address the issue of the student, I can speak to this personally, but also from observation. Like you said, these are marginalized groups, and they're marginalized for various reasons. And so when you're talking about study abroad, I'm not even going to discuss access to resources on campus, because that's something separate. But as someone who does come from a historically marginalized background, the impetus and the interest in studying abroad is a little bit less than someone who has that semester or has that summer to where if they don't have plans, if they don't have to work because they had to help support the family or figure out how to pay for school, studying abroad is looked at as a luxury and not required to graduate. So many times when I was talking with my friends who were in similar, if not the same situation, they would say, well, aren't you worried about graduating? Like, why are you leaving campus when you have to 
get all of these core courses done and we're all on scholarship and we only have eight semesters to complete our degree or else how are we going to pay for this semester? We don't want to drop out. So it's like this, this struggle of we are going to school. We had the good fortune of going to school because there are many people I went to high school with who just didn't go to school because they couldn't pay for it. So a lot of it has to do with money. A lot of it also has to do with the attitude of studying abroad. One of my majors was a foreign language, and I got criticized throughout my undergraduate career for studying a foreign language because it's not seen as marketable. Everyone hears about the STEM fields. And again, there is this job security with having a STEM major. However, I argue that because of my language background, I've been able to do so much. And yes, it's really daunting to not know what you're doing. I didn't know what I was doing the fall of my senior year after I was going to graduate. But I just had to have the confidence in myself to know that while everyone's telling me, no, 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 you can't do this, you can't do this, there's always that chance that there's a yes that's going to come through. There are a lot of elements as to why people may hesitate to study abroad and think that I can't do this because I have all these responsibilities going on or it's not relevant to what I want to do. What's happening now in terms of the rhetoric and language that's on campus, there's a lot of more promotional materials saying, you know, foreign language is important. You're seeing a lot of campaigns, at least at my home university, even more than when I was there. So it's really encouraging to see people invested in cross-cultural exchange to throw a buzzword out there. Having the language requirement, no matter what your major is, making sure that people understand that we are in an ever-engaged, ever-evolving world and society, no matter if you are a business or marketing major or humanities and foreign language major, having that international component is important. Those are just my preliminary thoughts. So talking about this sort of, I mean, you clearly had a sense that your experience in seeking out an internationalization of your own academic trajectory Mm -hmm. and, you know, seeking to study abroad, you know, it sounds like you really had a sense that you were having a different experience of that than your peers who were not coming from historically (laughs) marginalized, you know, groups. I'm wondering, if, so if you could expand on that in terms of what happened when you hit the ground. And I know, sure. I mean, we, we could do like a whole multi-year podcast on, no, for sure. on that for sort sure. of thing. But just to sort of kick us off and getting us thinking about this issue of identity and intersectionality mm-hmm. that is so infrequently part of this preparation process. Yeah, I'm glad that you bring that up. So to echo kind of what you mentioned at the very beginning the elements of one's identity, both the visible and less visible. I'll hit on the less visible and then I'll touch on the visible later on. But with the less visible, so I grew up in small town Kentucky. Parents were amazing, but, you know, lower socioeconomic level. I'm not afraid to admit that now. But then it was definitely something that I was ashamed about. Not to say that I resented my upbringing because it was, it was rich in so many other ways. But when it comes to the logistics and the practical elements of studying abroad, you have to have money. Like I, mm-hmm. The first uh, study abroad trip, I went to southern Spain and Morocco. So the euro and the dirham. Euro is a little bit stronger than the U.S. dollar. I think it was a little bit stronger then than it is now. But either way, just the, the idea of, okay, I have to budget for two months 
how I'm going to live in southern Spain and then the excursion to Morocco. Uh, my colleagues uh, and fellow study abroad students, they would go out every night and order all of this rich food and have sangria, picture of sangria, some to themselves, some to share. Mm. Yes, it's fun. You're having the Spanish experience. We'll talk about authenticity later. But having the, the, the I'm in southern Spain, enjoying life, la vida. I participated initially just because, you know, you don't want to seem aloof. And this was our first couple weeks into the program. But it's not like I could call home and say, Mom, Dad, can you transfer funds into my account? It was already a struggle being approved to study abroad on this trip. So I knew I had to be responsible. They give X amount in terms of a stipend in the program. This is my personal funds. I need to be smart about it. So those outings dwindled for me. Initially, people asked, oh, are you all right? And so I would have to say, oh, you know, I, I, I really need to work on this project. Or I really didn't understand this reading, so I kind of played the dumb card. Although I had done the readings and everything and, <laughs> and, and read ahead. But yeah, I couldn't say, I can't go out with you guys because I don't have enough money. Without anyone saying it very upfront that they were able to afford it and they came from a certain level, it was apparent in action. So that was really difficult. And that, and that happened again, too, in my second time when I spent my semester, spring of my junior year in Morocco. Even though dirham is weaker than U.S. dollars, about one U, U.S. dollar to ten, uh, still I had to be mindful. And that was also, if I may continue, Please. I, I think... Maybe we need a picture of sangria. Like. <laughs> <laughs> if only we had one. Hello. <laughs> And actually, my experience in Morocco shed a lot more light on how I view myself and understood the complexities of my identity and positionality as an American abroad. Because Spain, it was a little bit different. It's a European country. Yes, there's a difference in culture, but it wasn't as stark, mm. if I may say, uh, as in Morocco. And I don't say this to say Spain or Morocco is better or worse, but in Morocco, Looking at the less visible, me being from a lower socioeconomic status and budgeting, but knowing that Morocco's money is, is weaker, I felt uncomfortable when we had market visits, for example, where we were encouraged to, to bargain and negotiate. In some ways, when I saw a shop owner, I saw this is the sole source of income for a family. We had this cultural exchange. It was a part of the orientation week. And so they said, you know, the traditional family, there's not only the nuclear family, meaning kids and the spouse, but there's the grandmother, there's the aunt, there's the uncle, those, they're the cousins in one household. Understanding that concept and appreciating that, it felt uncomfortable for me, even though I wasn't coming from a affluent background, but knowing that my U.S. dollar was more powerful than the dirham, and to bargain for what, 50 cents, $2 even, when that could be contributing to a family, that was, that was a moral clash for me. Of course, I learned very quickly, if someone's charging me 600 dirham for a teapot, no, I'm going to negotiate. Right. <laughs> I'm going to negotiate. But for something that, I don't want to say frivolous, but something as like a as small as a trinket or a souvenir that I'm going to share with family or just have in my home and knowing that this is how someone earns their living, 
I, I didn't negotiate. I didn't bargain because it just did not feel right. There's a time to bargain and there's a time not to bargain. Exactly. And I think very often from the provider perspective, we kind of do a, a lousy job. Maybe not a lousy job, but it's just, I sometimes wonder, it's, it's something that you have to experience like that or that you have to be immersed mm. in the context enough to know For sure. where that line is and when you can breach it and when you shouldn't. And I think mm-hmm. too often we say, you know, kind of echoing the travel channel or whatever, (laughs) you know, saying, Oh, it's a, you know, it's a bargaining culture and that people can take that to the extreme. And Mm -hmm. as a provider, where do you draw those lines? For sure. As well. Like how do you help students draw those lines? Sometimes I think very often students aren't there long enough. Exactly. To feel out those lines, but students who were in a situation such as yourself are much more attuned Mm. to the fact that there are those lines. For sure. Yeah. It it is so, it was so interesting because we had our group outings, but not even halfway through. I just, I kind of distanced myself from my group, not because I, I disliked them or or anything terrible happened. It's just, I recognized that the students in my program came from a different background. And so how they even spoke about the country mm-hmm. was alarming in some ways, because we always talk about Edward Said and Orientalism. But <laughs> so much, right? It's like we talk, he's part of the introductory class, chapter one, and the conclusion, and the, the, and the last chapter, and Tancred. Oh, this right. <laughs> no. the East is um, a career. The East. <laughs> Gosh, but I mean, the students, yeah, the way they would speak about Morocco, it was this like mysticism and exoticism, and understanding that language and recognizing that language, knowing personally that I don't identify with it, I decided that I'm here, I'm going to try to expose myself as much to the culture that as I can. So I, I spent a lot of time with my host family, and that was amazing. I'm still in contact with them to this day, and they're like family to me now. Just kind of immersing myself in my neighborhood rather than being that American as, as part of the American group. Now, I want to put an asterisk on that and say I wasn't like going native, but just enjoying the moment where I don't necessarily have to spend money to make a memory. It's those conversations. Yes, of course, I have gandoras and 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 wood carvings and bowls that I've brought home, but those are for the physical reminders. But it's the conversations. It's those feelings that I had when I shared different ideas, when I talked about what it's like to live in the U.S., because I got that question a lot. I'm from the South, too. There are so many questions about, what is it like being in the South? Are there still cowboys? Are you a cowboy? I'm from Kentucky, so they also asked me about, you know, fried chicken recipes. And (laughs) it's like, I'm sorry. And and the look of disappointment they had when I said, I don't know how to make fried chicken. Everybody likes fried chicken. Everybody loves fried chicken. Everybody loves Kentucky, too. Hello, horses. Mm. Horses and fried chicken. Couldn't bring up the bourbon industry, but no, 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 not there, not there. Again, <laughs> but that's a time and a place. Exactly. I th- I digress. Like but right now. Essentially, yeah, positionality. I think ultimately, in my own process and journey of self awareness, and of course, this is ongoing still today. It's really it was really important for me to understand the baggage that I carried with it because it's easy to say leave everything home when you're studying abroad, but that's not possible. Nope. Understanding the baggage and the 
elements of my identity that I carry with me constantly, understanding how that then influences how I observe things, how I analyze things that happen in front of me, and also how my host community views me and how those may or may not be synonymous. More often than not, they aren't, so. Well, I mean, we're probably going to have to, we've got, like I said, we've got so <laughs> many episodes wrapped up in here, and this, sure. is just, this is just sort of our first foray into this issue of identity and its, Im- its importance and trying to help people recognize its importance mm-hmm. and prepare themselves for how important yes. all that, yes. like you said, the baggage, the background, everything is going to be when they hit the ground on their study abroad experience. Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of sort of taking us home for this episode sure. <laughs> and also, you know, setting us up for the next one, what was sure. the first moment when you plopped yourself down in Morocco, mm-hmm. where that that thing, that identity, you know, when your identity crashes, crashes into your context, what was your first sort of encounter of that? It happened multiple times. Language played a huge role in it. The first time I went, I only knew Fusha. People don't speak Fusha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, <laughs> I, mean, I was useless, yeah, yeah, <laughs> let's be quite like, frank. Yeah. Spoiler alert for all of you out there. Fusha. It's useful for reading, but when you're having daily conversations, you got to learn dialect. Amen. My first encounter was, we were in Rabat. Capital, it's fine. But we went and did a village stay, and we were there for a week. There's a term in Morocco, and I'll discuss this later, but to introduce it, there's a term that they use for darker complexion people, and it's azi, azio. I interpret it, and I also went back for Fulbright to do research on this. I'd interpret it as a pejorative term, equivalent to the N-word in the U.S. And so when in the village, we all came on on our huge van, and we got out the van, and all the children greeted us, but then as soon as they saw me, one of them burst into tears and ran away. People were laughing, not realizing why the child was crying, but I when I saw the child look at me, I knew it was because of my presence. Mind you, there were only two visible black women of color, black students, I should say, no black men of color in our group. In that moment, that was where I felt bad that I was there. I felt Mm -hmm. bad for scaring a child because of my skin color. That was really difficult. We don't have any cell phone service. We're away from Rabat and our resources. So it was a really tough week. And the child, I was their next door neighbor, ironically, because we stay with families. The child would always like peer around from their mother's skirt and just, I wish I could say that eventually we were able to have a conversation. We didn't. That will always be in my memory. Also hearing the community talk about all the two black Azias, understanding that term too, that was really difficult. That's where, that's one of the many head-on collisions that I will always remember. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. No, I of course. <laughs> I, I know it's tough. You know, if you could see us right now, it's yes. sort of, it's it's a moment. But I really appreciate you sharing that with us and with everybody out there, particularly students who are going to encounter the same thing and the people who advise them and other providers who are trying to send them on programs mm-hmm. that, you know, they need to hear this and see it and recognize it and do what they can to make this better and make it yeah. accessible and be real about it. 
So, Jelena, I thank you so much for this. And, um, (laughs) you know, we will be back very soon. And we're going to pick this up with you as well to talk more about your experiences and your research um, and how these experiences (laughs) played into your research. And and you have so many interesting things to share with us. So I thank you once again, the guest (laughs) on our first super real show. And I can't thank you enough. I'm so flattered. No, thank thank you. you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Studying Abroad in the Global South. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the individual speaking and do not reflect or represent the views or opinions of Amid East or any of its affiliates. Please visit our website at amideastedabroad.org and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in next time for something clever, snarky, and or hopefully useful. <laughs>